0: You're listening to the Net podcast network. Back with John Golson for the second part of our digital noise adventure. Yay! That's me. I'm John Golson.
1: Hello, John Golson. Hello. Are we just gonna do silly voices for the rest of the show? This what I have been doing a voice every episode, and I finally decided to drop
0: it. That's what you actually sound like. This is what I actually said. No, it's not. Courtney yeah. tells me, like, I love it when you do accents because within 30 seconds, they always just turn into Transylvanian. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you can start off doing Mexican, British, whatever, but by the end, you're Bella Lugosi. Mm. So I'm not going to do that now, but uh, it'll happen eventually. Anyway, we do have m- more movies to talk about here, uh, adding on to our list from last week. And we added a few because I, I said, well, John, if you've got to go. Then you gotta watch a couple more movies. <laughs> Next couple and of I days. did. And you did. To yeah, your a little, credit.
1: Little Alan Alda Film Festival you handed me. Hell on the yeah. Way out the
0: door. That, that made me happy when I got sent those. I was like, woohoo, Alan Alda.
1: And I live with a big Alan Alda fan. Oh, so, so she was thrilled. Yeah.
0: But we're not starting with Alan Alda. We're starting with China with the movie The Emperor's Sword on Blu-ray now. This takes place during the Quinn Dynasty. Uh, and it follows these heroes at first. You know, has does one of those sort of like this is all the lead-up that you need to know, which is there are these heroes called the Seven Gentlemen who each had a name that was like, your virtue inch, your wisdom, your bravery, whatever.
1: Like the kangaroos
0: from that other movie. Uh, what? <laughs> Warriors of Virtue. <laughs> I don't, uh, I did you not. You never saw
1: Warriors of Virtue? I did not. Oh, sorry. Okay, I don't want to
0: divert the... <laughs> no, that's fine. I just like didn't know what you were talking about. I was like, Kangaroo Jack? What? No, there's a
1: fantasy kangaroo martial arts film with Angus McFadden called Warriors of Virtue. Wow. That was made by a bunch of psychologists.
0: Maybe it was a Remake of the same story. Who knows? Know. Uh, anyway, so they're together to guard this sword that's, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's magical, but it's r- fated to bring peace to the land. And after the emperor gained power, the sword was split into two, where he kept one and the other went to one of his trusted generals. But the problem is. Like people are like, oh, if you hold both swords, you can conquer the land. And uh, so the Senate of, of gentlemen are like, well, we did our job and the war is over and there will be peace from now on, you know, and everything will be fine. But just flash to a few years later, there's not peace because the emperor dies and the evil general says, uh, I'm going to take all the imperial power and his half of the sword. But the uh, the daughter of uh, this ge- other general is holding the other sword escapes with it. And so it's a chase for the younger sort of teenage daughter who is trying to get one of the – some of the remaining gentlemen to help her against this. The problem is one of the all-powerful general guys – gentleman guys is now working for the bad guy. And so it's like brother against brother type of nonsense. I mean, that's fine. I actually thought – the plot is kind of disposable, no question. There's a billion movies in China that – wuxia tangential or straight up wuxia that are – more or less the same thing but i did in fact enjoy a lot of the fighting here it it does overuse the slow motion at points which can be annoying but you know so did john woo and he did it pretty well
1: <laughs> yeah this is like the uh this is like when you go to the grocery store and they have fruit loops in the box and then beside the fruit loops they have like the three pound bag of like tropical circles <laughs> and- <laughs> Sort Those are like, just as good. <laughs> it's sort of like the movie version
0: of that. <laughs> do, you, do you ever buy like <laughs> actual branded Honey Nut Cheerios, or do you buy the generic brand? Because I buy the generic brand, and I can't tell the
1: difference. We go back and forth at our house. We go back and forth. Like I like the generic Golden Grams more than the actual Golden Grams, but Wendy doesn't. And then there's like certain cereals that she'll get the <laughs> she'll get the bag stuff. So we do the bag stuff. But the movie to me is like that kind of it. It's familiar. It's what for whatever reason not as exciting. Okay, like you know, there's something more exciting about the box with two cans, Sam, that you get a little uh parachute man in than the than the bag and the map on the bag. Yeah. You can play a little mini game. <laughs> yeah, on. Uh, this is this is the bag. It's 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 a taste alike. Um, but you know, I don't know. This didn't. This was like so generic. Um, and again, it's not that it's bad, bad or poorly constructed. It's just uh you know, it is what the cover is, and then you watch it, and then you're done, and there's, like, it's not really particularly exciting. All those stuff does happen.
0: It doesn't really stick like, to your
1: ribs, that's for no.
0: sure. No, yeah. It's, it's um... Uh, I mean, uh, there's not a really, truly good fight till towards the end, but then there is one really amazing alleyway fight where it's, like, sort of one guy versus, like, guys coming at them either end in a narrow alleyway that's really well done. Yeah, um, But the rest of it, I was like, I've seen all of this before.
1: Yeah, it's, uh... But it is what it is what it is I think reviewing movies like this is is the absolute toughest because it's just yeah. sort of like be good or
0: be bad you like. ha- you have to be like i mean I watch a lot of martial arts films and a lot of Chinese films in mm. particular uh with with fighting of various types, and you'd think I would be easier with me pretty much having a, a pretty wide depth of knowledge in this field to be able to discuss the particulars of this, but the truth is they are sort of like. There's just so many of them are just like, well, here's another one. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, every once in a while you get something that comes out that's truly amazing. Like, you know, the Grandmaster from mm. a couple of years ago, like, wow, what an incredible piece of work that is. But, you know, <laughs> there's like there's no platinum age of Hong Kong cinema that- you know, like there was the golden age it ended around 96 and that's, you know, since then we've been lucky to get the occasional good, mainly heroic bloodshed film. Yeah. Like Jet Lee Li, or I'm sorry, Donnie Yen did a really good one this year called Raging Fire. It's terrific. But yeah, I can't remember the last time I saw it, just a knock your socks off historical epic. <laughs> I guess maybe John Woo's Red Cliffs, mm. which is, you know, almost unfair calling that a straight up martial arts fighting film because it's, it's a historical epic. Yeah. You know? Wu going, oh, yeah, I forgot I'm John Wu. I can I can command huge budgets and actually tell a story that's not just people beating each other up. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I, I don't know. There's nothing extra here on it either. But, I mean, if you really, really love this sort of thing, it's not bad. It's, it's well done for what it is. It's just more of the same. And, you know, which is damning it with faint praise, I realize. But, hey. Uh, but what I really did like and always wanted to see, I had never seen... 1970s Hong Kong film, The Chinese Boxer, uh, starring, written, and directed Jimmy Wang Yu. Now, why this is notable is because before this, it was pretty much mainly wuxia films coming out of the Hong Kong industry, with everyone doing tons and tons of wire work, and they can kind of fly, and what they do, that thing where they kind of kick their feet that make them go higher in the air thing. Uh, and it was, like, not really about the fighting. It was about the effects, and this is one of the first movies that really changed the whole direction of the industry uh, that was about, well, what if we start focusing more on style and the actual what actual martial arts is, you know, and try and represent that. This is really one of the first movies to do that. So it kind of holds an important place in history. It was certainly the, the biggest. I mean, it was a huge success when it came out and influenced so much stuff like, you know, Fist of Fury by Bruce Lee is. Pretty much just a remake of this movie, as is Jet Li's Fist of Legend, another really, really great version of the same story, which is martial arts school with the good guys bunch of guys show up who are bad martial artists and go, well, we want to kick all your asses to prove that our martial arts is better than yours. And yeah. that's pretty much the plot, right? Or they, they do, and they kill a bunch of them, and then the good guy, main surviving good guy's like, well, fuck that, I'm going to go train harder and figure out how to beat them, and then he kicks everybody else's ass. Sure, it's not a complicated story, but it's awfully well done in terms of like this sort of cinema one. I mean, I think this is one of the best of the 70s Hong Kong movies.
1: It's really solid. Uh, you know, it's another case of like, you have a, uh, you you know, coming off of the Emperor's, was it Emperor's Swordsman?
0: You've already forgot the name of the last movie. That's I can't remember if it was, was Sword
1: or Swordsman.
0: <laughs> but coming off of sword. that
1: movie, as, as far as it being like a sort of a product of a genre, just sort of like, oh, if you like these historical epics, uh, you know, wuxia stuff. This one is sort of the same kind of deal where it's like, do you like this kind of product? Do you like these kind of like 70s? Kung Fu movies Sunday afternoon matinee Kung UHF channel Kung Fu movies and but it's a good one yeah so it's like it's it's not generic there's some energy to it there's some excitement to it um and the although the plot is stock I guess I didn't realize its place in history so the stock plot actually becomes like the blueprint not it's not stock it's mm-hmm. blueprint um, yeah. you know, I often think about like Alien in that regard and how so many, so many movies have been influenced by Alien that I've had younger friends that have watched Alien for the first time and not really keyed into it because, oh, it's just like, you know, yeah. some other movie. 3000
0: movies that yeah. took the
1: same formula. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so I'm watching this thinking that it's yet another on the pile, uh, not knowing what year it came out. And mm-hmm. so that's really interesting because it does sort of, you know, it is then an early progenitor of that particular, of the visual cliches, of the story cliches, of those beats. Mm-hmm. But cliches, when I use them in this term, are not like a – I don't see them as like a negative. It's a feature, not a bug. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is this was really entertaining.
0: Yeah, it is. And it's a really solid release that they've put together of this thing. Um, I was very, very excited that this came out. This is a, um, 88 Films. This is their U.S. debut Blu-ray release here, which is pretty cool. Oh, that's nice. Cool. It was a
1: good – It was a good transfer too.
0: It was a nice looking movie. Really nice transfer. Um, it's, yeah, it looks fantastic and sharp. And I was, I was really excited about it. They've, I actually have another one of theirs coming up to review too. And I'm excited about it, which they're largely doing sort of 70s Chinese stuff right now, which there's a lot of which has never really gotten a super great release here. But, uh, this one also comes with the audio commentary with film journalist Sam Dayan, uh, Open Hand Combat, which is an interview with David West on the film, Wong Ching at Shaw, an interview with director Wong Ching, uh, U.S., the trailer for Hammer of God, which is another movie I guess they're putting out. And then there's the Hong Kong trailer, English trailer and the U.S. TV spot. Um, yeah, I, I think this is a movie if you have very little knowledge of the 70s Hong Kong movies like you just haven't seen a lot of them this is a good place to start it's it's really good. I mean, assuming you're not getting into it for the really wacky, goofy ones, like you you want the old guy with the beard who can shoot lightning bolts. That's yeah. Zoo Warriors of Magic Mountain. Like this is what you want when you were Like I want to see these guys, the the ones where they actually fight, and it's pretty good. Yeah, it's real meat and potatoes,
1: but yeah. it, it does have a it does have a life to it.
0: And you may remember seeing this on television when you were a kid. Well, you didn't see this version because this is the uncut version where it actually has lots and lots of gore and lots nudity. Of blood red, that that
1: <laughs> paint that. that that blood that looks like house paint. That yes. Like thick, bright, bright, bright red blood that has no, uh, it's like opaque. It's not
0: transparent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just pretty much house paint. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Highly recommend the Chinese boxer. Well worth checking out. Next up, we have another classic. And this is not from China. This is from LA. It's an LA story called LA story. And, uh, you know, I don't remember if we've ever talked about this at all or not on One of Us. But this was always kind of one of my favorite little quirky comedies that, admittedly, doesn't 100% work. No question. And a lot of it is a little dated. And I don't mean like in a, uh, you know, sort of way. You know, like, oh, that didn't keep up with the times of appropriateness. I don't mean like that. I just mean like some jokes just don't hold up as well because – you know, too many people have done stuff like it. You're like, well, now that's just corny, not as funny. But this is Steve Martin writing a movie that was ostensibly a tribute to his wife at the time, uh, who, is played, who is, uh, was Victoria Tennant. And, you know, it's a love story between them, and he wrote it for her. But when you're done watching it, you realize, A, they didn't stay married that long after this, and B... Oh no! This is really a love story to L.A. in a weird sort of, with all dwarfs and all. I love you, Los Angeles. Yeah. And you know, it's it's heightened reality. It's it's points. It crosses over into goofiness to to a really silly level, but it never enough to pull you out of it. He plays Harris K. Telemacher. Steve Martin does, who's a the wacky weatherman on a TV channel. And he's in a relationship with Mary Lou Henner, who is you know one of those like. You know, Beverly Hills Rodeo, Rodeo Drive shoppers who's trying to constantly be socially conscious. Um, and, uh, you know, he's feeling like this isn't I'm, – I'm better than this. I have multiple degrees. I shouldn't just be doing this goofy stuff. He has friends. He goes out and does crazy stuff like they film each other roller skating through the museums and stuff, which you're not allowed to do. Uh, and he meets Victoria Tennant, who's a British woman, uh, Sarah, uh, who's a journalist, and at, at a big lunch – and he immediately falls for her. and he <laughs> ends up, his car breaks down outside of a big highway. You know, one of those driving condition signs you see on the highway and the sign is magically alive. It's, you know, a kind of a weirdly, I, I guess it's adapted from something from Shakespeare. I forget what, which one though. Oh gosh. Oh, yeah. Right. It's like, I mean, there's a lot of touches in here that are like loosely nods at the bard, but the sign is alive and is trying to communicate with him you know, yes, you're better than this. You can do better. And also you should totally ask that girl out. Cause you know, you love her. So yeah, magical realism, but she's got an ex-husband, Richard E. Grant who's trying to hook up with her. Meanwhile, he doesn't think Martin doesn't think it's going to work out with her. Cause she's being kind of like, mm, I don't know. So he starts a relationship with basically roller girl from, <laughs> from boogie nights, but in the, the, the nineties played by Sarah, Jessica Parker, which was kind of a notable role in a turnabout for her career. Cause before that she'd always played klutzy nerds. And this is the first time anyone's like, Oh, No, I really, I think you're really sexy, and you should play a sexy, sexy girl. And she said this changed her whole career. This one part, it's like, oh, suddenly people started offering her different types of parts. And I do think this is cute and funny, and I'm glad it's finally out on Blu-ray. It's only been out on DVD before now. Mostly, I'm grateful because it comes with the I'd never ever seen before whole series of uh, deleted scenes that are like giant subplots that are missing from any previously seen version of the film. Yeah, I didn't know about that.
1: Um, I like, this used to be a, a cable mainstay Yeah, when I was in high school. Um, and I hadn't seen it since then. I liked it a lot back when I was younger. I don't know, you know, sometimes a movie catches you in a certain mood or something. And on this revisit, um, I wasn't as, I wasn't as hot on it, uh, as I was when I was younger. I think it has sort of a shotgun approach to comedy mm-hmm. and it's definitely like Steve Martin You know, his collaborations with Carl Reiner, who also had that kind of, like, gag-a-minute type approach. Uh, Reiner's Reiner's less successful gags don't hang in the air the way that they hang in the air in L.A. Story. Right. Um, And I I would probably chalk that up to the director, who's not like
0: a... uh, no, This is—he was a British guy who had never been to L.A. Yeah, then this was one of his first comedies. Yeah, he went to Steve Martin. Why do you want me to direct this? I am not the right guy.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think th- I think that kind of, it, it's kind—it's serviceable, um, but I think it is kind of evident in the way that the gags that don't hit hang in the air for really, really long periods of time because sometimes a gag will be the—it's almost. It's almost like a connected series of small sketches mm. that are that are threaded through with the story of Martin trying to woo these different women in his life. Um and then you get like individual scenes about like oh here's you know there's a couple different things that lampoon LA restaurants or a couple different things that lampoon LA traffic etc. Yeah. Um and oftentimes the premise of the gag will be established kind of up front and then there'll be like but then you've still got like five or six more minutes of the gag and it's just there. Um, So I I think the timing of it feels uh, off in the film itself. I still think it has a lot of charm. Mm -hmm. I think, I, I think Martin's screenplay is really good. I think he's really good. I think the cast is strong. It has some moments that like, even though I hadn't seen it in, 30 years, it has a whole bunch of stuff that I just straight up was burned into my brain, like completely remembered. Oh, yeah. But I think that I, when I was younger, I didn't notice its flaws as much as I do now. Sure. I still liked it, but it was like, I, I was really kind of like, oh, I'm really gonna fall in love with this all over again. And instead, it was kind of one of those discoveries of like, oh, no, it's, it's pretty good. Like, yeah, I was
0: kind of the same. <laughs> I, I, I was like, the last time I saw it was many years ago, and I was like, totally, blown away by it again and then watching it this time i'm like yeah i mean it's really flawed but it is charming and i think despite all the points where you're like that joke did not work at the end you're like yeah i'm feeling what they want me to feel here you know so i'm mm-hmm. kind of with it uh but I, I wish i could go back to that innocent young na- younger naive chris who was just like this is all perfect and i love it
1: i also think it's the last time I don't think there's been a movie since this one where Steve Martin has I mean his his career late 70s through the 80s into LA Story and then I think there's a line of demarcation where LA Story he stops doing absurd
0: Yeah, no, Uh, he even talks about it in the extras in here where there's like a period where it's like the more serious Steve Martin period where he like he he calls his best period where it's like this Roxanne and I forget what the other one is they did were like his more like they're comedies but they're they're romantic comedies that are a little bit closer to reality but this one to me is still very absurd like this one still has
1: like a lot of absurdity to it and then you hit after this you start getting like Princess of the Bride, and... I mean, not Princess of the Bride. What am I saying? What's the name of that movie? Father of the Bride. Father of the Bride. Prin- yeah. I was mixing Princess, Princess, Princess of the Bride. bride. That, that, I was mixing Princess of the Bride. I would
0: have liked bride. to have seen him in that. So in you, get, like, the bride, you get, like, Father of the Bride.
1: You get, like, out-of-towners. You get all these You get house guests. See, I would get...
0: call those a, the later period.
1: Right, but what I'm saying is, like, there's, there's a line here where right. it's like, he stopped oh. making movies with absurdist humor.
0: He says, all of me, Roxanne, and this, he considers to be, like, his three best.
1: And those are, those yeah. are really good, but I'm talking about, like, if you go The Jerk man with two brains yeah. uh we did Dead Women don't wear plaid yeah. you have this streak of movies with really cartoony ab- yeah. uh, sub- uh, absurd humor yeah and all, he just he just stops making all me kind of in movies.
0: 84 is kind of that bolt point where he's yeah. like oh i'm gonna start trying to do different types of stuff he still did three amigos but and and little shop of horrors but then it's like roxanne planes trains and automobiles dirty rotten scoundrels where you're like you're going after something different now mm-hmm. You know, and this was definitely, th- th- this is a little bit later in that. But yeah, still that. God, I yeah. forgot he was in The Spanish Prisoner. Weird. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think this is, anybody who considers himself even faintly a Martin fan should absolutely see this film. And this version of it has a lot of interesting stuff in it. Uh, first off, I totally forgot Patrick Stewart played the role in here with the guy who's the, the maitre d' of, as they're making fun of snooty uh, LA restaurants, Le Dior, which is, you look out, spells L L apostrophe idiot. You know, and he's like, he's got to go to a bank with the maitre d' to decide what he can af- actually afford to get to eat at the restaurant. No, you cannot have the duck. No duck for you. Very, very, very funny. But the bonus features here, like I said, are really interesting. They talked to the director and he said, like I said, he's like, I don't know anything about Los Angeles. I'm baffled why they want me for this movie. And after it came out, literally people like huge celebrities that I was in awe of were coming up to me and like going, man, great job. I love that. And the night of the premiere, Kevin Costner comes up to him and goes, man, we've got this movie called The Bodyguard and it's just kind of all about the soul of LA. We've been looking for the guy who understands that and you're the guy, man. <laughs> and he's like, what happened? And he has like three movies in a row that are like LA movies that he got to, that he got to do that he's like, I have no idea. What I'm doing here. How I got in this position, this Brit is like, this is his first time in America, but there you are. Uh, and I also like this, there's, there's two excised, pretty big subplots. There's one where his next door neighbor, Steve Martin's next door neighbor is Scott Bakula, who's doing the whole boxer down on his luck l- story. You know, where he's like, I gotta bite my way back. And his girlfriend's like, no, honey, they'll kill you. And like every couple scenes, like he's kind of witnessing this. And at one point, he's like, this guy's life is so much more interesting than mine. <laughs> Which is pretty funny, and then then he never appears in any way in the actual final cut of it. And then there's another one with John Lithgow, who's playing this high-powered agent who's interested in Martin, who flies everywhere with a jetpack around L.A., and there's, like, one of the deleted scenes with him at the very end, when they go up to encounter the sign for the last time and, like, thank the sign for their help. He's there in his jetpack talking to the sign and kind of flies so <laughs> Like, okay, that was weird, but I'm, I see why they cut it. But I'm kind of, I'm glad to know that it's there. I can I, watch I it.
1: Should have watched those.
0: Yeah. The deleted scenes and outtakes are wonderful in this. There's like about 21 minutes worth of them here. And like I said, talking to the director, Mick Jackson's LA story is about 20, uh, 24 minutes and it's really, really interesting. Well worth watching. There's an archival featurette, which is, you know, more EPK type stuff. That's 12 and a half minutes long called the story of LA story. There's the LA of LA story, which is another archival piece, but 15 and a half minutes. Um, there's a 1991 straight up just called EPK. <laughs> it's five, five minutes and 40 seconds and trailers. But, you know, this is the best version. No question that exists of this movie. It's been upgraded. It's the first time on Blu-ray. It's the first time we got any of these type of bonus features. It's, yeah, it's, if you like this movie, yeah, go pick this one up. I don't. I guess there just was a, this is one of those movies that kind of got lost in the shuffle. People kind of forgot about it. And, yeah. and this is, I'm not expecting a really much better copy anytime soon, but this is good. I liked it. Uh, so we're going to move way, way back to 1974 and look at the film directed by Richard Fleischer, who was kind of a big deal in his time. Uh, the Elmore Leonard adaptation, Mr. Majestic, spelled kind of weird. Now I've been hearing about this movie for God, ever since I was a kid, like people going, cause you know, my, my, my generation grew up with the older brothers and sisters. So not like full on, like a half generation older going, I love Charles Bronson and Clint Eastwood and all that, that, you know, that ge- Lee Marvin, that generation of action heroes. And I was like, well, we weren't really watching those, those guys. Clint Eastwood, eventually I discovered and fell in love with, but Bronson took me, it wasn't until I finally saw Once Upon a Time in the West, which was, largely unavailable here for a long time. And I was like, oh, I like Bronson. But this one is one of those movies I was like, along with The Mechanic, I was always like, man, someday I'm going to see that movie. <laughs> I've always heard that's a good one. And I really liked The Mechanic. I thought it was pretty good. Saw that a couple of years ago. And finally get the opportunity now through Kino Loeber to watch Mr. Majestic, where he plays the title character, who's a ex- Vietnam War veteran, who's now just a simple melon farmer, hires immigrants... At more than reasonable wages of a dollar forty an hour, <laughs> for the time I guess, uh, to pick his melons, and it is melon season, and they are ripe and they have got to be picked. But you know, people fuck with them, including random white dude who shows up and bafflingly goes, "No, you're going to use my people, bunch of winos I found the street for less," and like wants to take point a shock at himself. So you're going to use my employees and pay them. I'm like, what is happening here? (laughs) What kind of scheme does this... Anyway, the upshot is that gets him in trouble with the law because he ends up, of course, he's Charles Bronson. He takes the guy's shotgun away from him and beats beats him up. Ultimately, it ends up in a situation where Bronson, don't ask, gets on the wrong side of a professional mafia hitman. But then, like, uh, you know, they... The hitman gets away and is like, I'm, I don't care what happens to me. I'm going to punish this motherfucker. I want him dead and turns into a personal vendetta with Bronson having to figure out how to deal with the situation. You know, he's Charles Bronson, so he's got to figure out the situation, even if he might be out of his gourd for doing it, as it were. But uh Mr. Majestic, I got to say, John. I thought it was kind of dull, quite frankly. Hey. Yeah. All right. I right. was waiting for that one. Okay. I was like, I was ready for this to be exciting and more interesting than it was. And I was like, dude, forget about the fucking melons. Jesus Christ.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is the second time I've seen this. I don't ever want to have to watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, noted. Um, I, I don't get it. I don't like this movie. <laughs> I don't get people's
0: love for it. They And they do. They love the shit out of this movie. They do. I know Tarantino was a big proponent of this film.
1: Yeah. Um, it's, it's just, it's of a time, I guess. I don't really get Charles Bronson as an actor. I'm also, I think, a little resistant to get him, if I'm being completely honest, because he was... Um, He's like my stepdad, like one of my stepdad's favorite actors. <laughs> oh, I see. And So it's like John Wayne and like Charles Bronson and like these like particular brand of like alpha male, right? Tough guys. Um, but and another one of his favorites was Chuck Norris. And I
0: fucking hate the Chuck thing Norris. about
1: Chuck Norris and Bronson to me that they have in common is they're kind of like Bronson probably has more personality. Well, I say probably Bronson has more personality than Norris, but they both are kind of like. They're like they're like macho ciphers. Yeah, like they're sort of like empty, but they're they're visually masculine. But then they sort of are just there. Yeah, Uh, I I don't really get the appeal. If I'm being completely honest, and Mister Majestic for it to be lauded as one of Bronson's best, you know, starring roles, uh, it's it's going to keep me from diving deep anytime soon. I think I like Twelve to Midnight. Okay, I've probably seen. I don't know if I don't know if I've seen which death wish I've probably seen the most of. I'm sure I've seen assorted parts of various death sure. wish movies. Yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, I just I you know, it's from Elmore Leonard and I've read Elmore Leonard novels and they're like, you know, really interesting plots and like crackling dialogue mm-hmm. and that Where isn't is even all that conveyed here. here. Yeah. yeah. It's just I don't know. It just doesn't it, it really, really doesn't do anything for me. It is it is honestly like it It's kind of a chore. Like, sometimes you... Sometimes we watch stuff that's, like... uh, It's not doing anything for you, but you can get through it. Yeah. And, like... <laughs>
0: this is like I've, work
1: and i've seen it before yeah and it's just like okay no i gotta pay attention i gotta pay attention i gotta keep watching
0: <laughs> look something's happening on my phone <laughs> uh
1: yeah i it's a it's a thumbs down to mr majestic
0: and they just re-released this just a few years ago kino lober but this is apparently a new pressing from the 2k transfer it looked
1: nice Transfer yeah, was good and Transfer was really good
0: i just was like even the action is like There's nothing really inventive or neato here, and I expect better from both Fleischer and something based on a Leonard, Leonard book, but, you know.
1: There's a big car chase, um, and at the time, like, Bullet and French Connection, you know, car chases were all the rage. There's a big car chase, and what makes this one different is through its, it's through, like, fields and ditches. Yeah. Um, I
0: mean, it's a little, it gets a little dukes of hazardy, because it's like regular sized cars trying to chase this big old truck with huge shocks that can handle big jumps across culverts and shit, but, It's all still like, okay. I
1: just want to give a content warning to the audience as well, that uh, if you love watermelons, there's a scene where a whole entire shed of watermelons is massacred in cold (laughs) blood. So, uh,
0: it's pretty seedy in that sense. That's true.
1: It's about an hour in. So just keep your eye out when you see these guys (laughs) enter this, uh, this warehouse and it's filled with uh, watermelons. I would say fast forward about two minutes. <laughs> if,
0: if that's a trigger warning for yeah. you, destroying watermelons. There's an audio commentary here by film historian Paul Talbot, author of the Bronson's Loose Books, which I didn't even know was a thing. Uh, interview with director of photography Richard H. Klein. That's about 14 minutes. And with actress Lee Purcell which is about 27 minutes and 57 seconds. And then there's the TV spot in the theatrical trailer. Yeah, I, I won't ever watch this one again. And there are other Br- Bronson films I kind of enjoy where he works better. This one is just, you're just constantly mystified about like the character, you're not like you're interested. What is your mystique? It's more I, yeah, like, I, you're little just little... a boring
1: guy. And the world doesn't make sense. And I think yeah. that that's something that probably it'll get got lost in translation from page to screen is that the world of hey, uh, I picked up these winos off the street and you better hire them. It's like, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense. The Hitman stuff kind of barely makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's confusing why. Yeah. I'm sure the Leonard book is much better, but I don't know. I've never read that either.
1: You're you're left with like these plot incidents that don't have any real discernible firm motivation for why people do (laughs) what they do.
0: Okay. Fair enough. Well, I was much more excited to see our next one, which is, I, you know, all right. So this movie came out in 1981. It was written, directed by, and starring Carol, uh, Alan Alda, also as Carol Burnett, Len Cario, Sandy Dennis, Rita Moreno, Jack Weston, and Bess Armstrong. And that's pretty much about it. It's like an ensemble piece that they are the actors. Um, it, it's called The Four Seasons. It was a really huge hit when it came out. It spawned a spin-off television series. It is decidedly a, f- a comedy for grown-ups. Like, it is a comedy completely pointed at people who are, like, in their late 20s and up. And for some reason, when I was 11 years old, I saw this in the theater, like, three times, and I thought it was <laughs> awesome. No idea why. I could not tell <laughs> you why. You, you feel why. grown up. I guess, maybe. I mean, watching it, this is the first time I've seen it since it originally came out. And I was like, yeah, this is truly delightful, if has no particular place it's going. It just kind of – it very – amiably shambles about a tiny thing that's sort of a plot, but with these delightful-to-watch character actors playing these characters that interact in a way that makes you feel that all these people really like each other in real life and had a lot of fun making this movie, especially Alda and Carol Burnett, who are just playing off each other like they're actually a married couple that really dig each other. I mean... Yes. The, like I said, the pl- it's the four seasons. So each one takes place in a different season with this group of friends, married friends that meet up. They go on vacations together all the time. And as it goes along, there's, you know, some spli- slight divides. People call each other out on their shit. One couple breaks up. The guy breaks up because he wants to date younger women and everyone's horrified by it. But there's still just not a lot of plot here. It's just sort of like it's shit that happens.
1: Yeah, it's like you an know? early ancestor of like the Sunrise Trilogy.
0: Yeah, or or even one might say similar to the Big Chill, but yeah. without without a morbidity hanging over it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, yet, I found that all the way through, I was just even rewatching it now. I was like, this is just thoroughly charming. It's it's light and fluffy, but in a smart way, you know. It's like watching the show Twenty Somethings. I'm
1: surprised th- they haven't remade it. That was the thing that was striking me while I was watching it. Was I was I was surprised that they haven't. Uh, they haven 't touched it again, yeah it seems like something that they could almost you know just just almost take the script and just recast it or play around with roles and really like remake it almost as it is um i didn 't realize it came on the eighties for some reason, I thought it the whole entire time I thought I was watching it. I thought it was uh a seventies film it has the feel of a seventies film, I guess mm-hmm. coming it has sort of that um. Oh, you know, talking about going to your analyst and dealing with the fallout of what it means to be married in like the free, post free love America. Mm-hmm. Um, and all that kind of stuff felt very seventies to me, which is probably when it was written if it ended up getting released in 81. Mm-hmm. Um, so it felt very seventies, but I, that's not a knock against it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I had never seen it before. Um, I th- I really liked, you know, it's kind of funny. I was watching it and I felt like Carol Burnett's character was a little underused. And then she has that w- really great scene where she gets in the argument with Alan Alda mm-hmm. and it was really, really good. So it was like, okay, yeah, here's like, she may not have done any, a whole lot of stuff before that moment. But within that moment, I'm like, okay, they gave her something like, cause she really right. knocks it out of the park. Um I mean, yeah. it's d-
0: decidedly Alda's movie, like, mm-hmm. I mean, he wrote, directed it and he wrote the strongest part for himself. Yeah. Um uh, He's, if anything, we're kind of seeing it through his eyes. But yeah, I mean, when they, because she's always there with him, but it's just sort of like, is more like agreeing with him and like there to, to like do the jokes with him to mm-hmm. bounce jokes off of until that one moment where you're like, up until that moment, they are always on each other's side. And then there's, it's kind of shocking that you're yeah. like, oh. <laughs> you know it's funny the two girls who played daughters of two of the couples here are both alan alda's daughters i knew one of them was i didn't yeah. know the other one was. yeah both of them. beatrice and elizabeth alda yeah.
1: yeah this was really good um it was it was uh i i think i thought it was going to be more plot heavy than it's yeah. just like these little you know you get it's these little visits with these characters um and it was yeah it was good
0: yeah, I, it's funny how many people I've talked to who've seen this who I wouldn't expect to have even seen it, much less liked it. And they're like, yeah, it's one of those films that you're like, I don't even know why I like it, but you can't not like it. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just, it's so goddamn affable. Yeah. Uh There's not really a lot of bonus here, really. I mean, this is Kino Lober, and there's like theatrical trailer, radio spots. There's an audio commentary by entertainment journalist and author Brian Reisman. But, uh, you know, I mean, you're not... I don't know. Will anyone ever listen to that commentary? I could not tell you, but I will not be that person most likely. But I will go back and watch this again, cause it's, like I said, it's kind of delightful. I will be keeping this one. Uh, I don't know if I felt as strongly about the next one, which is, which I do also like. But also seems a little aimless and a little directionless, just not as charming, which is Alan Alda in The Seduction of Joe Tynan, a movie I have been meaning to watch since I was a kid. I mean, I was, I grew up watching MASH, so yeah. Alan Alda was like one of the biggest stars in the world to me, like him and William Shatner, you just didn't get any bigger than that. Right? So I was like, I oh, want to see everything. And this was like out on HBO, but it would always play later because it had like very mature themes in it. And so I wasn't allowed to watch it. <laughs> uh although I got to see four seasons so mm-hmm. go figure uh, <laughs> but this one's directed by Jerry Schatzberg and uh and the screenplay was written by Alan Alda who plays the title role here where he's a very liberal US senator from New York City and you know he's toying with presidential ambitions uh and he's kind of He's stuck between worlds because he has friends who are on the more conservative side uh, who are really saying, OK, this nomination of Supreme Court justice is really, really, really important. And we could you know, this is a like like an elderly sort of mentor figure to him who is more conservative is like, look, man, I hate to I don't want to do this to you, but really uh, Melvin Douglas playing the role. If you don't help us with this guy and by help, I just mean you can vote against him. Just don't fucking get on your soapbox against him. Then I don't know if we can be friends. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, Alan Alda is, he's married, uh, he's Tyne, Joe Tyne, and he's married. He's got two kids, but he's constantly gone. His wife clearly doesn't like it, but, you know, what are you going to do? She's looking for a new career, trying to be a therapist. Uh, but while he's going on this sort of fact-finding thing about the nominating judge, because he does take his job very seriously, he uh, encounters a lawyer played by a very young and super hot Meryl Streep, uh, Karen, And they're like, oh, working together and sort of sparks fly. And before you know it, they're having an affair together. So the seduction of Joe Tynan, as much as I thought this was going to be more about more of a metaphorical seduction, like he's being seduced. It feels like it's going to be a movie about a liberal being seduced by money. And it's not. It is very literally the seduction of Joe Tynan. If anything, maybe he's a little seduced by the idea of power, but not in the way of usually those sort of things go like, oh, power corrupts. It's more like. I, he really is genuinely interested in the politics and what it means to him. Although I think that there's something to be said for the, you know, there's a juxtaposition between his morally upright, honest, you know, do the right thing liberal politician and this guy who's really easily swayed into having a long term affair with another woman when he's married.
1: Yeah. I think you could walk into any given moment in this film. Like if you were, if you had it on in the living room or, you happen to be in a uh, working at a movie theater or something when this came out. It feels like the kind of thing that you could walk in a room, watch any given couple minutes of, and be like, "Oh, what is this? This looks really, really good." Mm-hmm. And what you don't know until you watch it as a whole is that the pieces don't look really like coalesce; they don't really gel together. Yeah, because it spends the first almost the first half hour setting up this idea where his mentor slash friend is asking him not to do a thing. Then his party goes, Hey, we have this opportunity to do this thing. And we want you to be in charge of it. And you really think that that's going to be like the thing that sort of drives it because the first half hour is almost like uh, a West wing or a scandal in regards to like, Absolutely. it's just like talking to him about the situation and talking to people and advisors and et cetera. And then it introduces the, the infidelity subplot And things get really wobbly because it's not particularly strong one way or the other in its examination of the political stuff that he's going through, nor in the relationship that he has with Meryl Streep and the relationship he has with his wife. By trying to carry both of them... it it sort of doesn't carry either
0: of them. The idea feels like a great pilot for a television series. Yeah. You know, where you're like, Oh, I could see both these stories getting more and more interesting and tense as the season goes on. But it really, you're right. Each one is kind of, once that happens, the political stuff kind of, it's still constantly there. It just is less immediate. And yet the affair, we don't really know much aside from they're working on this thing actively together and they're fucking and they're enjoying fucking. Mm -hmm. And that's about it. We don't really see the dynamics of their relationship play out very, very much. Um We know that he, you know, it would help for her father, who's a rich, successful guy, to be on his side. But they don't even really exp- spend much time exploring that. It's kind of like... Somebody said less is more, but I don't think that's true with this sort of thing. I think we needed more, although it is a very smartly written script. People talk to... Everyone feels like a real person here. Yeah. And the dialogue is is very smart. It's not as funny as I was hoping it would be either. I didn't expect it to be goofy, but like a little more... You know, smart. I mean, I guess you watch, I've watched so much of the West Wing, you're like, I want Aaron Sorkin to rewrite this <laughs> and do this. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it could be better. The, one of the only funny sequences in this really is with Rip Torn, who plays this sort of wild senator who's just, that doesn't give a fuck and shows up at parties and is just groping everybody. Yeah. All right, and... let's
1: talk about this gumbo, Chris. Oh, okay. Um. Did that visually resemble any gumbo you've ever seen in your entire
0: life? No, it, it looked was, like a bowl of spinach. It was with, just co- it was just collard greens, as near as I could tell.
1: It, yeah, it looked straight up like greens with big. With like whole shrimp in
0: it. Yeah. I have no idea what, okay. what the, I was, I was like, like,
1: am I crazy? I, that doesn't look anything look like gumbo. any gumbo I've ever laid yeah, gumbo on.
0: Gumbo is usually sort of an orange or red, red tint to it. Yes. There's a gumbo sort of eating contest between Alan Alda and Rip Torn in one scene, which the the issue is that it's so incredibly hot and that, you know, a guy, he's, Rip Torn's from the South. He's like, ah, oh, you New York boy, you couldn't handle this heat. Well, spoiler, he can handle the heat. <laughs> but it didn't look very hot to me, as you said. it was like that's just those are just grains, yeah
1: <laughs> I could do that's that. when I checked out of the movie completely. <laughs>
0: that was the point yes the, uh, as I always tell tell uh, my wife, don't be a phlebotomist, <laughs> which is a joke relating to no one gets more weird in movies about something being wrong because of the career they're in than fucking nurses they get. I've, I've known so many who just lose their mind because someone didn't do a routine procedure exactly how you're supposed to do it. So anytime she's like, well, you know, that would never happen. I'm like, don't be a phlebotomist.
1: <laughs> I don't know how dummies all over the world for the past 50 years have written cop movies. Yeah. Like if you asked me to write a cop, I think they all copy off each other. Cause <laughs> if you asked me to write a cop movie, I would be like, I guess I would write it like, oh, there's like a chief and he sits in an office and he like, you go in there and talk to them every day, and because uh, that's what I've seen in movies, you right? And I mean you almost but,
0: get fired a lot.
1: Yeah, but yeah. the reality is, I bet you that it's like nothing at all like what we've seen. Yeah. It's probably because like, when when you watch true crime stuff, it's always like people in really boring looking, uh like office building kind yeah. of things with just like cubicles and right right
0: i mean i I guess for the cop thing i've been told hill street blues is supposed to be one of the more realistic versions of like what cop's life is actually like you know it's a lot of it is just fucking office work and the usual bullshit um but i don't know i'm not a cop i don't know really any cops and i'm not going to be a cop so i guess i'm going to prefer the version where it's like give me your gun and your badge (laughs) sure but you can't stop me from taking down whatever (laughs)
1: Joe Tynan, I think Alan Alda was politically active. I think it shows oh, in the it shows in the film, like uh, it feels it feels real, uh, other than the gumbo.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, you're just all stuck on the gumbo.
1: But it is but it it just, it just never comes together. It just doesn't, Joe.
0: Um yeah, I, I think it's still very eminently watchable, especially if you do like stuff like the West yeah. Wing. It's a it's a almost ram. It's like, wow, this could have been really good. It's not, but it could have been. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's close. Oh, well, there's only one bonus feature here, which is the audio commentary by entertainment journalist and author Brian Reisman. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, I think if you like that sort of thing, you should give it a try anyway. You know, you might like it. I know people who love it. I'm like, okay, I think it's fine. I can't argue against you loving it. Yeah, there's nothing bad about it. Well, we're going to go to a movie that is ostensibly bad. But I got to be honest, John, I love it to pieces. I can't believe I have never seen The Dead Pit before now. 1989 film, uh, co-written and directed by Brett Leonard in his directorial, directorial debut, where this woman this poor woman who walked around this obviously freezing cold set of an insane asylum, the whole time wearing nothing but underwear and a white shirt with no bra on. And like I said, that's how you could tell that it was very cold. Uh, Cheryl Lawson, she is in there and she has to defeat a a ghost serial killer that's like a surgeon we see in the beginning in the dead pit that like he was there and he was experimenting on patients in the basement and like by like doing brains. It was kind of a reanimator type of dude, you know, I mean, not literally trying to reanimate people, but that kind of Herbert West type. And uh, another dog came down, like, you're a madman, and, like, shot him and threw his body into the pit where he'd been throwing all the bodies of the people he had experimented on. Yeah, you know, this place must keep terrible fucking records, John. <laughs> and then he sealed it up. I was like, no one will ever know. I'm like, why not? It feels like this is something you would be like, yeah, we should probably get into that this, this was happening. That would, like, you know, we got somebody to pin on all these mysterious patient disappearances. But anyway, so years later, she's there. She has amnesia. Doesn't know who she is. But... She starts seeing this ghost doctor around amongst various other wacky members of the staff and, uh, the people who are, are going there. And, you know, are they hallucinations? Are they real? And then there's an earthquake. And I was like, where did that come from? I, I, this, this is a weird movie with when it does gore. It really does not fuck around. It's like, well, this is going to be gory. Uh, Like, this will be a big gory scene. I was like, this is pretty fucking cool. And it's so batshit insane in the last third where it's just like, ah, fuck it. It's a zombie movie. (laughs) It's a ghost zombie movie. I was like, all right. This never stopped moving for me. I was like, this is one of those ones. This is dumb. Everyone's a terrible actor in it. And it just moves really fast. It's really gory. And it's just so absurd that at the end, I was like, I was gleeful, John. This was the type of movie when I was like 14 would have been like my favorite movie that year. But like, yes, I love this. Oh, when they put this out originally on VHS, and I didn't realize I, like, memories came flooding back of seeing it on the shelf.
1: Yeah, it has the... the- glowing eyes embossed cover with, with like 3D sculpted cover with glowing green eyes on the
0: zombie they, they would have a little battery in there so mm-hmm. like you, you could press a button on the side of the case and the, the eyes would actually like light up on the case <laughs>
1: yep i remember the i remember the box from childhood uh and i've always remembered that particular that that box and the box 2 and it just got a release uh the Kindred, uh-huh. the box of the Kindred with the baby bottle that has the green monster inside the baby oh, bottle. Right, right. Um, both of those were, were like, box arts that, like, intrigued me. But I was super chicken when I was a
0: little kid. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, yeah,
1: I, you liked this more than me. Um, I, I
0: figured I probably would yeah, like this more than most people. There's it, a specific type of person this is for, and I am that person.
1: It has that kind of... Um, I don't know how to describe the acting other than from Mars, (laughs) where it's like the lady from Troll 2 or like the it's garbage day guy. It's like everyone's acting, especially in the first half of the movie, is like to the rafters, but not just to the rafters. It's like it's not just overacted it's also delivered weirdly. And so it's like the strange combination of like, you would never say those words that way. And also you wouldn't shout them. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> um, If you're a fan of that particular type of like oddball, what the hell am I watching acting? This is full of that. Uh, i thought it was i thought it was not great um (laughs) you know obvious romero and fulci homages obvious clive barker stuff as well yeah come to daddy i was like okay like (laughs) just a couple years ago Razor came out um it was yeah it was highly derivative uh it was very um man it's just about an inch away from being like Really enjoyably trashy, I felt like.
0: Yeah, that's where I'm at with it. Cause I'm not going to defend this as a good movie on any level. The it's a freaking shirt scene, dude. It's ridiculous. There's a scene it's where they're, so like, they're like, well, this is treatment where they've chained her up and are just using a high powered water hose the on her. And her shirt off. just blows off. <laughs> and I'm like, what was that? <laughs> blower
1: blow her clothes off of the,
0: with a hose. Um, yeah,
1: it's, it, uh, it was, um, Brett Leonard went on to make better movies. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, the, I, do you count The Lawnmower Man? Is virtuosity
1: better? is better than is it, The Dead Pit. Is it? Virtuosity I is mean, better than The Dead Pit. To,
0: on a technical level, yes. I, I might say, I I think I could say I actually enjoyed watching this more, though. Hmm. it's definitely, Rich Rossi, a better made film. No question. I mean, didn't that have Denzel Washington in yeah. it? Yeah. Russell Crowe? Yeah. 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 So, right there, but it's a shitty movie. <laughs> it says The Lawnmower Man. That's a terrible movie. I never saw The Lawnmower Man.
1: Because it I loved the story and it looks so different from the it, story.
0: It's completely
1: it. different. Um, Yeah, it's a big old no for me on Dead Pit.
0: Okay. Well, I really enjoyed the crap out of this. This is just my kind of goofy, absolutely, like, what the fuck are you doing movie that the one thing you can't do with this type of film is bore you and this never bored me I was like yeah even if it's one thing after another that's just laughably a bad decision it's just never stops doing it and like I said the gore is pretty good it's pretty well shot and constructed gore and there's a lot of it and there's a really hot lead who gets naked a lot and come on what do you want for 80s horror films yeah (laughs) um I do, you know, caution. It's not going to be for everybody. It, it does get kind of heavy with said gore and nudity. But, and you know, things that are not appropriate by today's standards. But this is a 2K scan from the original negative uh that's been put out by Code Red, uh with uh, new audio commentary by the director, the co-writer, and the star, Jeremy Slate. There's an on-camera interview with stars Cheryl Lawson, J- Jeremy Slate, and director Brett Leonard, and writer-producer Gimmel Everett. And uh yeah, I'm keeping this one, John. I like it. I'm going to show it to other people with the warning. I'm not saying this is good because no sane person would, but I think you might like this.
1: <laughs> I'm glad that stuff like that still gets released.
0: Yeah, and it's funny. This is one of those ones that... A bunch of like critics when this came out really hated this film. Like all the horror magazines loved it. We're like, oh yeah, I mean, it's not a good movie, but it's a, if you love big, goofy, gory horror films, it's pretty good. Like Fangoria and what have you, you know, Joe Bob Briggs, they all really liked it. But some of the, um, yeah, you know, the bigger name critics who encountered it were like, this is literally the argument for why no one should make horror movies <laughs> We're saying shit like that. And you're like, yeah, maybe horror is just not your thing, buddy. I don't know what to tell you.
1: The 80s. What a strange, what a strange critical consensus that was going on in the 80s about horror. Yeah that whole like oh they it's they're for sickos and they shouldn't even make them
0: yeah the only ones that were considered okay at all were the really high profile you know your rosemary's babies and your exorcist and even those got royally raked over the coals by a number of critics some of which critics decades later came back and were like okay maybe we were a little too sensitive to stuff like the texas chainsaw massacre at the time which is it was too much mm. but now in retrospect i can appreciate what it was that was made it so effective um but yeah i mean that still happens to some degree. It's always something that's shocking somebody that they're like, oh. Video now it's video games. No, it's video games. Yeah. They shouldn't make violent video games. Well, they're not going to stop. I hate to tell you. Yeah. And they
1: tried to, they tried the, the recent shooting that happened. They tried to tie it into the death. Of course they, they did. They tried to tie it into Fallout 4 because Nick Valentine in Fallout 4 says, I, I am become death destroyer of worlds. Mm-hmm. And the kid that was the shooter had apparently written that on a piece of paper yeah, and they tied is, it to fall. And I'm like, it's not even like not from
0: out. No, like
1: it's in fallout, fallout <laughs> but it's well, not from fallout. You, know,
0: you say they, you know, who they is right. It's the, the NRA <laughs> every single time. Like yeah. you could do the trace of every time they try and chase it to video games. And it's, always you're like oh look that guy he works for the nra because well, they a do shame, not want to say video
1: games do more to sell guns than any other thing then
0: then <laughs> except for people who actually sell guns <laughs> yeah <laughs> where it's like yeah we don't want to take responsibility so hey point over here it's this cat's fault this cat you drew a picture of a cat it must be we need to ban cats there'll be no more oh, killings he frowned he, he's not happy with that anyway that's it for this digital noise thank you for joining me john but you know what Out of this list, what is going to be the pick? Oh, good lord. I assumed you were going with the Chinese boxer. No,
1: I'm going to give it to... I'm going to low-key give it to Four Seasons. Okay. Uh
0: more people should out see. Out of
1: everything it. there, that would be the one that I would probably revisit in the within the next 10 years. To right. be completely honest.
0: Yeah, I'll definitely be rewatching that one for yeah. sure. Uh but anyway, that's it. Thanks for joining me, and we'll be back in another couple of weeks with more digital noise. And obviously, if you're exclusively a digital noise listener at one of us.net, um, you'll hear me again before then. But we probably won't probably won't have another show out before Christmas. I mean, I don't know. I'm gonna really try to get one more in the can with Wright. We'll see. Uh people's schedules are a little crazy, but you know, if I don't see you before then. Happy holidays, folks.
1: Happy holidays.